Hi, this is Joe Bouchard, former member of the Blue Oyster Cult, and uh, you're listening to Talking Blues. I wanted to start with an album, or, or your involvement with an album that I don't, I haven't seen you talk about much, which is the Pink Floyd Reimagined or Animals. Oh and, yeah, and yeah, I love that. Oh my I God, it's that. one of my favorite Pink Floyd albums. And I am, I am still stunned that I got the opportunity to do that recording. Tell me about how it came about. I just got an email, and would you like to be on a Pink Floyd? tribute album and I said sure you know and um, it was from Cleopatra Records uh, they they do a lot of these kind of recordings so uh, next thing you know I get uh, some tracks uh, some uh, was a link to the uh, the basic track and they said just put a bass part on it and then of course I looked into it and it was a little more complicated than I thought because uh, Actually, there's two bass parts. The original recording has actually two bass parts, a lower part, then there's a melody part, too. It comes in at the end, so it was a little complicated. I thought maybe that's something I could have knocked off in a day, but uh, it took about three days, you know, to to get everything just just the way I like. And uh, But the most amazing thing is were the other musicians that I was going to be playing with. And um, uh, Billy Cobham, uh, for example, as the drummer. Mm-hmm. I've known Billy since 1972. Uh, I actually go to parties and I play with his brother, Wayne uh, Cobham, <laughs> a tremendous trumpet player. And uh, we've jammed at, uh, at different events. Um, and so I know Billy and uh, we, we, toured with Mahavishnu Orchestra back in 1972 and uh, yeah that long you know and what a tremendous musician so I was amazed that I was then then I found out that Al Gimiola was going to be the guitar player how good is that (laughs) I love Al Al is my hero and um, and uh, what's his name uh um, 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 Patrick Moraz. Yeah, yeah. Patrick Moraz from Yes. And it was supposed to be a different singer, but in the end, I think they got a great singer, uh, James Labrie from Dream Theater. Um, um, Dream Theater. Oh, you, you've studied it more than I have. But I, and then I started spreading it out, and it's just, it's, it's a, it's a really popular. It's the biggest streaming thing that I've been on in recent years. And uh, it's in, it's interesting because tribute albums can sometimes not sound great, but yeah, especially that tune is so respectful to the original. And, yeah, and, and but what I like about it is that Al does not try to sound like uh, Gilmore. No, he is Al. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, he's got that picking style that's so uh, so unique. And um, so he 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 did a great solo, and the keyboard solo is amazing. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean it was all good, all good. And I think I think it was mixed by some German guy. This is a very international production. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm in Connecticut. Uh, Al D is in uh, uh, New Jersey, but Billy Cobham was in Switzerland. He got stuck over there during the 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 COVID. Wow! Yeah, he couldn't get back. Wow! So he was in he was living in Switzerland and did the drum part in Switzerland. And I'm not sure where the other parts were recorded, but it was real a real pandemic project, you know, where <laughs> I had to guess in my mind because I was the first guy to put his part down. You know, and I said I really gotta you know make this, uh, you know, solid for everybody to follow. So that's kind of how that happened. And and I am really grateful. And I'm going to do another project with um, Billy Sherwood, who's the current bass player in Yes. Mm-hmm. 
we're working on another project. Uh, it's not uh, Pink Floyd. It's a progressive rock thing where I play the bass. I'm playing the bass for the bass player. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a dream, you know, just, you know, what can I say? I'm, I'm, occasionally I get asked to do these sort of outside projects, you know. Uh, mostly I'm working on my own material and new, new stuff and um, but occasionally these things pop up and I am just like stunned you know and thankful that uh, somehow they got my name they pulled it out of a hat I don't know <laughs> well if people haven't heard it it's called Animals yeah. We Imagine and it's it's a great yes. album um, great album it really is I know that you have this extensive musical background i think influenced possibly mm -hmm. by your uncle maybe your dad yeah um yeah you're obviously you come from a musical family with your brother yeah but you play a lot of instruments so well, I, I i don't know which came first the piano the guitar bass or trumpet i i was uh piano first okay um we we had a, an upright piano on our farm we had a dedicated music room which was great. It was a real small farmhouse that I grew up in, in upstate New York. And, uh, but we had a dedicated music room and, uh, and uh, we, you know, I was, I, I took lessons when I was nine years old on piano and uh, didn't like them. <laughs> I'd rather be playing baseball, you know, that kind of thing. But I got back into the piano because uh, we had a lot of guitar players, friends of mine that were guitar players. So if there was a piano, I would be playing piano parts. And then finally, um, when I was thinking about what I was going to do for a living, I um, said, well, I'm going to be a musician. <laughs> It'll be easy. <laughs> it's what I love to do. Did that happen? Or did you think about that because of your uncle who was a, did he not play jazz? Yeah. 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 But he was like, uh, he had a little insurance business and, you know, he was just weekend guy, okay. but I ended up being full time for many years, you know, and that's how I made a living. And, you know, and I'm thinking mostly I played the bass in blue oyster cult and, uh, yeah, but I loved every minute of it, you know. It's amazing, you know. Well, before Blue Oyster Cult, you went to school for yeah. music. Yeah. For piano. Yeah. And composition. Yeah. Well, I would have been a guitar major, except in 1966, uh, the, guitar was not a serious instrument. If you wanted to go to college, you had to study a serious instrument, you know. And... Uh, it's it's yeah my, my my trumpet chops were terrible. <laughs> I went to my singing teacher and I said, "Yeah, I want to go to college study music. You think I could be a singing major?" And the singing teacher said, uh, "Well, why don't you go talk to your piano teacher?" <laughs> and my piano teacher was this nun, Sister George, at the parochial school, the uh, Catholic school. I went to Sister George, and she was about 80, and she said, oh, you can do anything you want to do. And <laughs> I said, okay. And then I found out how hard it was, you know. I, I had to really bust my chops. The last, the last two years of high school, I got back into piano and really was intense about it, you know, and started learning some of the classical music, but I still was one by the time I got to Ithaca college, which is a beautiful music school, um, uh, in New York state, uh, beautiful town, mm -hmm. you know, right there by Cornell. Um, but I was way behind, uh, most of all of my students. I was the worst piano player there, but they didn't care. You know, I always did. I, I would, I, I would, you know, I'd play some jazz. I played, uh, swing music. I played funk music. I, I joined a Latin jazz band that was really cool. And, uh, you know, with two girl singers. But that was on the bass, right? Yeah, that was my first time on the bass. So you learned the bass on, in a Latin jazz band? I learned it, yeah. Was, yeah, playing Latin music. Wow. We had charts. We had charts for everything. And uh, the leader of the band was actually my guitar teacher they finally by the time i have been at school for a couple of years they finally 
realized that they had to have a guitar teacher, you know. And eventually, my friend Steve Brown, um, he had like seven guitar teachers, you know, in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, you know. They had added a, a lot of guitar teachers to the to the uh, to the staff at Ithaca, and and now there's lots of schools that will take you as a guitar major, you know. But uh, but I had to learn that, yeah. And and I, I just like you know fiddling around with other music. I play the banjo and mandolin, and uh, you know get to use those occasionally, you know. I see a collection of. Um... A lot of instruments yes, a behind you. Yeah, guitars back there. Yeah, this goes. And um, I love it. I love all of it, you know. It's just. And then I got back into the brass, um, you know, because I was so bad as a trumpet <laughs> player that, you know, when, you know, time opened up, you know, after I retired from, uh, I had a teaching business for many years, you know, doing a little teaching on the side, which was, which was, it was, it was great. It was independent teaching so I could go out and do gigs and whatever I had to do and just tell my students, I'll see you in a couple of weeks, you know, just practice this. What What were you teaching? Which instrument? Because you play so many. Mostly mostly guitar. Okay. I mean, occasionally a banjo lesson or mandolin lesson or, or uh, I did songwriting lessons for for a while. I wrote some books. I was working with a publishing company. Um, called Alfred Publishing. It's a big music uh, music publisher, and I wrote about five books for them. Uh-huh. Rock piano, all my stuff that I do: rock guitar, rock piano, rock bass, bass, no brainer bass. <laughs> and they they would they would put the same title out, but they would change it. You know, <laughs> you don't have to read to learn how to play the bass. So if we go back and you said you decided that you wanted mm-hmm. to pursue music as a career or become mm-hmm. a musician, tell me what you had in mind. Like, what did you picture that to be? Rock stardom. I, <laughs> I, I well, say before I even played the piano, way back as a, as a young toddler, I heard a Little Richard record. And I said, holy mackerel, this, this is amazing, you know. Uh, we, we, I'd go to my cousin's house and he had older sisters. So they had, you know, Elvis records and they had, uh, you know, all the, the rock and roll records of the day. But I was amazed. I heard, uh, little Richard's greatest hits. I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, uh, you know, uh, swing music or, or the Dorsey brothers or, or Frank Sinatra. It was, it was Little Richard. So that sort of got me a, a thinking that I, I should really be in this rock music business, you know. And luckily, I think it, it developed, you know, as I, I graduated from uh, Ithaca in 1970. And within one year, we signed a contract with uh, Columbia Records. But when you went to Ithaca, what were you thinking I mean, did you want to maybe pursue teaching? Did you, was it mainly about learning yeah. how to play the instrument? I was, uh, yeah, of course it was like you, uh, something to fall back on. And I was a music education major. Uh, I don't think they had too many performance majors. They had music therapy, you know, that kind of thing was offered. Um, music theory. Uh, eventually I got my master's degree in music composition. Uh, I went back in the nineties, I went back to, uh, graduate school. Um, it took me about six, seven years to get my graduate degree, but that was in music composition. And that was a real eye opener because I'd always been a, a songwriter all this time, lot, you know, write some songs, a new album was, was coming up, you know, I'd have to finish an album or, you know, and there'd be maybe one slot left for me to put my song on the album. But, uh, after you know years after that i when i was back in graduate school i could just write music that didn't have to be a song it just could be like a string quartet or a brass quintet and i eventually my master's thesis was a ballet piece Mm -hmm. 45 minutes long for a 90 piece orchestra wow (laughs) i was out of my mind (laughs) Okay, so why a ballet piece? I thought I was Stravinsky. I thought I could be Stravinsky. 
<laughs> you know, the thing is about musicians, they're always dreamers. And uh, I certainly fall into that category, you know. Well, but uh, at the same time, if you had a dream of becoming a rock star, then you achieve that dream, right? Mm -hmm. Which not many yes, people can yes. say. I'm card-carrying rock star. <laughs> okay, so I want to <laughs> go into that a little bit. But before we do, um, do you think of yourself as a piano player, guitar player, bass player? Like what? Well, I, as a songwriter, I do most of my writing on piano. I was thinking about that recently, you know, um, because it's got all the, it has all the notes there and, you know, uh, and then what I'll do, I'll, I'll, I might start a song on the guitar, but then I always go to piano or if I start on piano, I'll go and verify what I'm doing on a guitar and then sort of put the two together. So I hope that they're not all of one or, or, or all of the other, you know, it's kind of a, a total thing, you know, that it comes together uh, after I get all the, you know, have explored all the uh, regions and of, of, of the sonic palette, <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's, I don't want to get too technical. No, no, but, but I'm curious as to how, how you hear things. Like, do you hear it as a guitar player, piano player, or does it not matter? Do you know when you think of a song? I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. I'm 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 doing a lot of sort of dream writing now. You know, where I'll, whatever I dream, I'll I will pursue that the next day. That's certainly what I did on my latest album. Was you know I I get stuck and like you know how can I make this interesting? You know, and I said, well, just go to bed and sleep a bit, <laughs> and hopefully, just before you wake up. In that lit, that sort of uh, moment, as as you're waking up, that's when the best ideas come, you know, for me. And uh, more so than driving down the highway and just humming along. That helps. That helps too. It's someday, yeah. Or I'd be driving in the car, and you'll see me pulled over to the side of the road, and I'm humming into my my phone. <laughs> So if you see me, if you see me parked along the side of the road, I'm probably working on a riff for a song. <laughs> Has this always been the case in your life? Did, did, did... No, in in the very early days of the band when we had signed with Columbia, um, I just kind of like would have these things where I just go blurt it all out at once. And hopefully, you know, have a notepad and write things down or put it on a cassette. You got, you got a boom box with the, the old, old cassettes. You put it on the cassette and then you work out uh, the cassette to be a little bit more fleshed out arrangement. And then I would bring it into the band. But I don't really think I thought about how those ideas came about. It just they just came about, I, you know. And then many years later, when you were actually studying composition, did it all make sense? Like, did what you, what you did in the past, were you following the right path to becoming a good composer? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm still trying to become a good composer. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an ongoing struggle. Uh, I'm trying to. Yeah, yeah. Well. I, I think I think it started as a as an extension of the songwriting, and then I said, "Wait a minute, you know, I'm doing this thing that's this purely instrumental, and I was sort of writing in a sort of modern, the modern style of the day. You know, sometimes it was atonal music, or you know, um, you know, modal, you know, choosing a different mode and sticking with that." I think my my composition teacher liked the fact that I I would be sort of real academic at the beginning of a piece, and then I'd get about three quarters of the way through, and then I'd start rocking out. <laughs> <laughs> so when you played with the jazz Latin jazz band, I think it was called K Pasa. Um, when oh you, boy, you've done your homework. When, when you that's a good. Um, so when you when you played in that band. That wasn't what you were going after. That wasn't the big rock stardom. But what did you learn from that experience of playing in a Latin jazz band? Ooh, that was good. Uh, well, it was the most uh, professional band I had been in. And I, everybody was an ace 
ace musicians, you know, um, they, they had, they were all older than me. So I was the kid, you know, that they got to fill in as the bass player. And I was there for two years. So, um, no, it's just, it's just the whole, whole way it was organized and was, you know, all the parts were really good. And then, um, I got pretty good at reading music. So I, I could get a new song and sight read it during a gig, which was, I, I well, I, being a piano major, you, ha, you when you're reading music on piano, you've got right hand, left hand, all kinds of things, different rhythms going in different directions. The bass part, it's just one note at a time, pretty much, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> pretty much. So it, that that was really a piece of cake compared to some of my stuff that I had to do for my classical piano. Um, no, I learned a lot, you know, I, you know, I was playing the, the parts that were, um, you know, probably played by studio musicians, the, uh, the people who made, uh, you know, Sergio Mendes, uh, band in 1966, right. uh, Brazil 66, whatever it was. And, uh, and then I found out that most of those recordings were people from the Wrecking Crew. So I was playing the bass lines of the Wrecking Crew. So that was a good good foundation that I would take with me later, you know. But I, but I presume joining Blue Oyster Cult, which wasn't, mm-hmm. they weren't called that at that point, but you're, you, when you got yeah. your, the call from your brother to say, come and join the band, I guess that's a completely different discipline. Yes, and I said, I better forget all of my school learning <laughs> and just play everything. What you think it would be, just play it backwards. <laughs> the guys, they had a they had a style before I, I came into the situation. And uh and, and they were uh they were um you know really street musicians, not really um not you know, they knew a little bit about musical you know the traditional music forms but mostly they were like you know you know street musicians basically or you know learn by ear and and um they were also into a lot of the sort of bizarre stuff at the time like captain beefheart or um bands like there was a band called auto salvage and but they were into uh you know the english bands traffic right you know, it was about that time. And uh, so I said that I, I should I should definitely sort of uh, adjust my style to to fit into the situation and, you know, give them a good foundation. And uh, hopefully it worked and people are still talking about the music, you know, uh, a good 50 years later. It's interesting that you get a phone call saying, I want you to join the band as a bass player and we're going on tour with Led Zeppelin. And then soon yes. after the the Zeppelin tour doesn't happen and you get dropped by the record company. So, yes. so how did you feel then? Oh, I was mad. <laughs> I said, they didn't give me a chance. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I had followed the career of the guys that they were called soft white underbelly. And then they had another transitional name. Um, and I had followed them for all my college career. I was expected, and I loved the stuff that they were doing. It was kind of more West Coast jam band uh, type music, but I I really loved it, and I expected that they would be, become big rock stars. and And I didn't, never thought I'd join the group. I didn't. No, I don't think I ever really thought. You know, I have to join the group. Mm-hmm. But if they could do it. Why, you know, I could get a band together and do it, you know, (laughs) I, you know, especially uh, our guitar player, uh, Donald Roser, and now he's also known as Buck Dharma. Uh, He's a very gifted uh, musician, very gifted. Uh, His his father was a jazz musician, Mm. very good jazz musician. So he grew up in that that atmosphere, you know, he's brilliant. but within a year, you're auditioning for Clive Davis, and you get a record yes. deal, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, do you remember that audition? I guess you would. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> and did you think you had it? No, I. Uh, 
I mean, I don't think we were that good. It was sort of, I think we were just in the right place at the right time. Uh, Columbia was expanding their sort of heavier options, you know, the rock and roll, rock options. Because they had Paul Simon, they had Bob Dylan, but they didn't have, you know, and they had the birds, but they didn't really have anybody to compete with Led Zeppelin. <laughs> We, I could do that. <laughs> I could do that. Uh, but, you know, it was more than that. But it was like Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And, and, what our, and our manager was very astute in that he felt like we should just get rid of all of that sort of 60s jam band West Coast style and do the more maybe the British harder edge style and that was fine by me i had no problems with that i i I like doing all kinds of music so that was uh that was fun i mean i think the band's been described as the thinking man's heavy metal band how did you how did you imagine (laughs) how did you picture that or how did the band picture themselves our manager thought up that (laughs) (laughs) he was brilliant um yeah because the the lyrics had a, a weird bent to them, you know, maybe in the sort of Pink Floyd thing. There was the earliest that was definitely a, we felt like, yeah, you know, they the the early Pink Floyd the lyrics were really whacked out, you know, and uh, so um, we d- we didn't mind that at all, you know. We didn't feel like we had to do we didn't have to do a commercial, you know, Moon June. You know, love tune uh, type lyric. Well, we 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 were going wanted to be weird. We want to be different from from the average at the in those days, and and we 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 held that up with pride. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go back to a question I meant to ask you. As you were growing up, you lived close to the St. Lawrence River, mm-hmm. um, close to Watertown, I presume. Yeah. I'm from Toronto, Canada, so oh, yeah. I can kind of picture all that. Um, I think Canadian radio had some impact on on you and your yes. brother. Tell me how yeah. what, how did the Canadian radio influence the musician that you are today? CKWS in in, in uh, Kingston. Right. We used to listen to Kingston radio, which was interesting because there was the Canadian content law, and right. so there was some lot of different. Canadian bands. I heard the Beatles way before they were on American radio. Yeah, that's they, right. you know, I remember when the Beatles came out, and I was listening to it on on uh, the Kingston stations. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, I don't know. It's kind of rough around the edges, you know. <laughs> I don't know if this thing is going to catch on, you know. Um, yeah, we were definitely influenced by that. Uh, Cliff Richard and the Shadows was the other English band that the Canadian stations would play a lot and right. American stations really never got on to Cliff Richards until the eighties, I think. Interesting. Um, and that was a big influence on the Beatles. Uh, Paul McCartney could do a tremendous <laughs> version of uh, Cliff Richards voice, but then, you know, but they, they, you know, they were not the Beatles and then the Beatles came out in America and it was like, it was all over. It was like all over but the shouting. You guys, you know, I mean, uh, I said, I remember saying to my brother because we had, we had played our Beach Boys songs and instrumentals, uh, the, the ventures and all, mostly a lot because we didn't really have a lot of confidence in our voices. Um, and then the Beatles came out and said, Albert, what are we going to do? Well, you know, I'm not sure, you know, the next thing you know, we're playing the high school dances and like the whole night was Beatles songs, you know, and we had to learn to sing, you know, we had to learn to, ooh, we had to do all of that, you know, so much fun, so much fun. So very quickly, the band gets the record deal and then you guys, I mean, from where I sit, I never know how things move, but the band did quite well from the first album, did it not? Pretty well. Uh, I Did it surprise you? Uh, it made a profit because we didn't spend much money on it. 
I think it was $10,000 for the whole thing. Wow. The, the, we just delivered the tapes and the artwork. Everything was like all in for 10 grand. And then they sold about 7,000 records. So they, they probably made a profit of maybe $5,000 by the end, you know? Uh, and, but I think they were mostly impressed that we toured our butts off. You know, we, we were out, playing with all these, all kinds of groups, uh, Savoy Brown, Bob Seeger, um, the young Aerosmith, you know, Uriah Heep, uh, you know, it was the, uh, the, the endless tour. And so how do you look back on those days now? Because I presume you're probably doing hundreds and hundreds of days a year, probably spending very little time at home, spending a lot right. of time in motels about, and hotels. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I, I had a great time. It didn't, you know, it, it, it was, uh, it was, uh, the real, realization of my dream, you know? So yeah, I felt pretty comfortable with it. You know, I mean, we'd have our ups and downs and sometimes the tours wouldn't be the best and you wish you were home. But most of the time I was just thrilled to be in front of an audience, um, you know, you go into a, a, a small town and you would be the biggest event in that town for the month or maybe even the year, you know, Blue Oyster Cult was here, you know, mm. and and uh, and we slowly picked up fans and the uh, the record label realized that that we were building our fans on the road. The biggest tour that that really made an impression. We got to be the opening act for Rod Stewart and the Faces wow. in 1975. And this was sort of the setup for the, our big hit, our big hit album and our big hit song. Um, we, we played all over the country. It was a classy show. They had an all white stage, white instruments, white things. And then in the middle of the show, the curtain would come up and there'd be a full orchestra there and Rod would sing his ballads. So it, it was the first time we played to full houses everywhere. And, uh, uh, and also it was the first time we had a, a, a primarily female audience. Mostly before that, it was all guys in leather jackets and jeans, you know, right. but uh, Rod brought the ladies in. And then uh, the year and the year after that, we came up with uh, our big hit, Don't Fear the Reaper. And everything changed. Did you know when that song was being recorded that it, it was something special? I knew it was something special from the first time I heard it. Um, Donald brought his cassette into rehearsal and he had worked on it for, I don't know, maybe a month uh, at home. We were that rare time that we were off the road and um, brought it into rehearsal and all the parts were there. It was like, and the trick is, how do you find a hit song for a weird group? <laughs> is that the way you saw the band? Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we wanted to have a hit song, but we didn't want to cheapen it by just doing, you know, a typical pop song, you know, that, that has the right hooks in it, you know. Uh, I don't know. There's something magical about that song. And um, I, I still play it like, you know, I play acoustic guitar version of it. And, you know, I'm, I, it seems like I learned something new about it. There's just so many levels, mm -hmm. you know, and, and Donald's lyric is kind of, you know, evolving always evolving you know and how i feel about it and and uh people go crazy so that's a beautiful thing it's interesting i think was it one of the scream movies that they there was an acoustic version of that song yeah. which was really done well yeah um and then there's also the more cowbell yes <laughs> so it, it the song seems to have this life that continues. Yeah, continues. It has life that continues. I don't know. Maybe it's because we were that weird group that you wouldn't expect. And that's why the cowbell thing <laughs> was caught everybody by surprise. Like, what the hell is that? You know? 
And uh, but it opened us up to a whole generation that grew up on other music, hip hop and grunge and disco and whatever, you know, and may have missed, you know, our hardcore days, the early days. You know, it's it's hard to to put a, you know, how do you build, how do you how do you connect connect to a new generation? Well, that's one way is you get on a comedy show. <laughs> And make people laugh. <laughs> um, I don't. I can't remember what year I saw you at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, but I remember seeing Ooh, you. Yeah, and you had your oh, laser show. Yeah. Oh, tremendous. Yeah, that was a good good year, <laughs> a really good year. And I, and Maple Leaf Gardens. Oh my God, I can't believe we're here. I remember we the first time we played in Toronto was with uh, Mott the Hoople. Mm. Great band, and it was it was it, what was what's the name of that hall? The uh, the something Massey Hall. Massey Hall. It was Massey Hall, and uh, the opening act was a band we never heard of, Aerosmith. It was one of their first gigs. Wow. They weren't that good. <laughs> they got they got a lot better. <laughs> they got a lot lot better, and they were good friends of ours. So, but that was the first time we were in the middle, and Mata Hoople closed. You know, so they had. All the young dudes, and so, and uh, that was the first time in Toronto. But I, I remember that well, and I remember Maple Leaf Gardens. Wow, what are we doing here? That's Ooh. crazy when you think about the number of shows that you've played, and that you mm-hmm. can remember that from that many years yeah. ago. It was a it was a tough thing to get the right agent. Uh, I remember that there were there were competing agents in those days, and I remember we had to. We had to fire one because another one was going to give us a better deal. Then we ended up having to pay a commission to the first one. You know, it's amazing we survived, you know, but it we did. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. Do you, do you remember a moment where you thought, wow, I, we've made it. We've This is that dream of me being wanting to be a, a rock star. And was there a moment where you thought, oh, I think I am one. Well, I'm in a band that's huge. Well, probably playing Madison Square Garden. Even though we were opening for Rod, there was like David Bowie was backstage, Bruce Springsteen, Andy Warhol. We had a big party. <laughs> I mean, the, the record label really, really uh, supported us. Um, it was a big step to play Madison Square Garden. And uh, ended up playing there three times but there were other great places you know a lot of stadium shows Mm -hmm. uh i i i I think back fondly now at winterland in san francisco right we played there four or five times man it was great and um that place you know jimmy hendrix played there and uh, grateful dead and you know it was the it was the place in san francisco at winterland and uh, you could see the kids lining up. We'd be at the hotel at the top of the hill, and you can look out your window, and you see the the the, the lines going around the block. I'm like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> that is cool. <laughs> so not only do you have a, a hit that still is huge today, but it, the band also had another hit with, with "Burning for You." Yes, which is also a oh. magnificent song. Yes. Um. Yeah, I didn't, well, I wrote a version of that because the lyric was by a guy who wrote lyrics for us, uh, Richard Meltzer, wrote the lyric. And it was just sitting on the piano in our rehearsal room uh, for for months. And I'm looking, I'm, pick, I'm picking through this stuff, like what should, you know, there's a, lyrics to this and that. And I said, oh, I'm burning for you. Actually, it was called Burn Out the Night, had a different title. And Donald changed it to burn, uh, "Burning for You." Um, a good, good choice there. Good choice. But "Burn Out the Night," I thought could have been a hit too because I just, I just liked the way what it was talking about. You know, uh, I think that Richard had broken up with his girlfriend, and it was kind of that kind of breakup song. Uh, but it, but, but it was poetic. It was poetic. Anyway, I wrote a version of it. It was terrible. It was ended up in the scrap heap. And Donald wrote his version of it. And um, there's a couple of competing stories about he brought it in. And, and my brother said it wasn't that good. And 
take it. Don't do that over again. So he came back with a new version, which is the version pretty much what you hear. It's an interesting thing because your your band, yeah, and it has this heavy metal image to it or hard rock image to it. But when you mm-hmm. look at both the Reaper and and Burning for You, they're not really really heavy heavy songs. They're very melodic and very yeah. catchy. Yeah, melodic. Yeah, and Donald's voice definitely delivers the message mm-hmm. pretty well in both songs. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's <laughs> we we you know we. We worked hard on a lot of other singles that didn't didn't connect as much as that. But uh, at this point, you know, we're we're grateful for those, and we're grateful for the, all the other stuff that maybe could have been, <laughs> but wasn't. It's it's a it's a real tight rope walk to find that connection with the public that is going to, you know puts you in the top 10. So one other song I want to talk about is Astronomy. Yeah. One of your songs that I don't know. I mean, I presume that was, it was a pretty, a a big staple in the band when you guys played it. Yes. But obviously when Metallica covered it. That changed my life. That changed my life. Tell me about that. Um, Well, that was the time I, I had left the band uh, about 10 years earlier. I left the band 86. So in 1997, they, they were doing an album of uh, people. They, you know, they had a version of turn the page by uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Seeger. They had bunches of songs by thin Lizzie and motorhead and just a lot of their influences. And thank God they, we, we were one of their influences and they wanted to do a Blue Oyster Cult song. And um, I, I, I heard on the internet, because the internet was new in 97. It was all dial-up, dial-up <laughs> internet. You remember those days. Oh, yes. And, uh, uh, but I said, you know, it'll be, you know, it'll be some, you know, some of the obvious songs or maybe a heavy song or maybe one of the hits. I didn't know what it was going to be. Then I found it was going to be astronomy. I said, holy crap, that's great. I mean, I co-wrote the song. I only had a, you know, a, 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 about 25% of the, the publishing on it. But as soon as I knew they were definitely doing it, I quit my day job. <laughs> <laughs> In rock star fashion, you know, you find you're like, you're going to be on what, on an album with, one of the biggest bands in the world and probably at that time was the biggest mm-hmm. band in the world. And, uh, um, so, and it told me that I needed to write more songs and, uh, which, yeah, uh, you know, definitely write more songs. The, one of the first things I did after I quit my job, <laughs> was, what was your job at this point? I was, gonna do. I, was I was, uh, working in the book publishing business. Okay. Uh, and that's where I did the books for Alfred Music, right. uh, mostly uh, educational books. It was, it was part of the National Guitar Summer Workshop, which is a, a, um, uh, a company that did uh, workshops for kids in the summer. And they would make books for their students. So then they sort of they connected with the, the bigger distributor. And then then they had to get serious with books. So I would do I would. Uh, I would write some of my own books, but also I learned typesetting and page layout. And uh, it was it was fun and exciting until it wasn't. <laughs> How much was music in your life at that point? Uh, well, I never stopped. It, it would be like, you know, but uh, yeah, uh, that was right after I got my master's degree, too. So I knew some of the software that I'd be using and. And uh, it was fun, you know. I would, I would do all the captions for the. You'd have to put some pictures in your educational book, so I would do all the captions. <laughs> you know, what do I write about Miles Davis? Well, you know, so I did all the captions in the books, and um, you know, made some some editorial choice choices. Uh, doing the uh, the piano books was a lot of fun. We had three different authors in that series. Still a very big seller. Um, 
but it was a 50 week a year job, you know, and, um, I wanted more time off to do music. So I, I, uh, and write more songs. The first guy I called up was Ian Hunter. Mm. <laughs> Ian from Mata Hoople. Yeah, yeah. And, and we had this, uh, I was, I was working with Neil Smith from Alice Cooper right. and Dennis Dunaway from Alice Cooper. We had a little, uh, writing, uh, band, uh, you know, a rock band and we'd be writing songs on Monday nights. So I said to Ian, how would you like to come to Neil's house and help us write some songs? He says, oh, I'll, yeah, sure. So I'd pick him up at his house. It was about a 40-minute drive to Neil's house. And while we're driving in the car, he's telling me all these stories about how he wrote this song and, you know, his his methods. You know, we talk about other things, too, families and, you know, uh, you know life on the road. And, yeah, and uh, and then he'd get down to Neil's house and say, oh, I'm just going to observe, you know. And, of course, you know, he's he's such a creative guy. You can't hold him back, you know. And he'd be listening to what we were doing. So, mm, I don't know. And then he'd go, he'd go out in the backyard because he had these uh, little cigars. He was trying to quit smoking. So he figured, I guess, he, he, you know, he had these little cigars he just smoked. He couldn't smoke in the house. So he'd be listening to us practicing. We're working on a riff. And they says, he'd run in and say, oh, I got something. You know, <laughs> let's do this. You know, do, you know, you know. And then, yeah. So he helped us write four, called Write Four Songs that came out on a, a recording called Bouchard, Dunaway, and Smith. And then uh, I started doing solo albums. Mm-hmm. I started doing done solo quite albums. quite a few. We, we, would, we, we had some great gigs. We played the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Neil. We went to, uh, did a little tour of, of England and France. Uh, but generally, Neil didn't like to be on the road. He was, he, 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 he you know, we'd do 50 rehearsals and five shows. I'd rather do five rehearsals and 50 shows. Um, so he dropped out of the group, and then my brother came into the group. And we started this uh, other band with uh, Dennis Dunaway on bass called Blue Coop. And we're going to be in Toronto. Right, in July. Coming up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know that. Yes, at the Elmo Combo. At the Elmo Combo is a famous, famous place, I guess. Yes, everybody played there. Yeah, yeah. So we are looking forward to that in July. So, um, and then that, that opened up a thing. We've got three studio albums with that band. And I started doing solo albums, which were fun, you know. Um, and every every time I do a, a new album, I learn something new. So just put out the seventh solo album. And it, it it's a beautiful autobiographical uh, album of my life in the 70s. Mm-hmm. A lot of that, you know, and of course other other stories that, that I might not have as well fleshed out if it wasn't for, for Ian's encouragement. Oh, really? You know, for Ian, Ian Hunter's encouragement. And then I, I think of back too as being self-produced, you know, you're doing your own albums. I think back to some of the uh, great producers that we had in our Blue Oyster Cult days. Uh, we started with our manager and then we met this guy, David Lucas, who was, was a jingle guy in New York, but a really brilliant guy, a uh, real musical guy. He would get the harmonies right. He would get the, you know, he would tell us when, when, when it wasn't, you know, the, it wasn't swinging enough. It wasn't, didn't have the right feel. And then later on, we worked with um, Tom Worman, who did a lot of cheap trick records, a uh, tremendous producer. And then after Tom, we had, uh, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> Martin Birch, who did the Deep Deep Purple, Purple yeah. records. Yeah, yeah. And then he did, I think, um, Judas Priest. or No, Iron Maiden. He did Iron Maiden for many, I don't know, 15 albums with them or something like that, you know. And then the last, one of the last producers who worked with was uh, Bruce Fairburn, 
who did the Aerosmith comeback records. And yeah. So every time I'm working on a record, I think, well, what would Martin say? You know, (laughs) is this, you know, have you sung this as good as you can or, or have you, you've, you've, you've sung it too much. Maybe you have to back off and take an earlier take, you know, all, all those sort of decisions and, you know, just sort of the formality of, of doing recordings, you know, making, making recordings that resonate. Um, if you don't mind me asking, here's a kid who has this dream of being a rock star and then winds up with one of the bigger U.S. rock bands touring for many, mm-hmm. many years with big hits and a lot of album sales. At one point, you decide that you want to leave. And I can't even imagine what the road life and what kind of pressures you're under. But it, was it a difficult decision to decide to leave a band, which is part of the dream that you had? And then I guess... No. Because I presume that once you've lived the dream, maybe it's not as <laughs> interesting. But how difficult was that decision? Or how did you come about that decision? It was very impulsive. <laughs> it was very impulsive. Um uh, there were like a whole stack of factors. I wouldn't say any one factor mm-hmm. was the reason I left up. Uh, probably the biggest was I had a young family at the time, you know, two young daughters. Right. And um, I, 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 I felt like, you know, and I had been so lucky, you know, every step of the way, you know, through high school and, you know, going to college and then ending up in this band and getting signed one, you know, uh, with Columbia and then that whole ride. I felt so lucky that, well, it's time to try something else. And I wasn't sure what it was going to be. I probably, yeah, I didn't know. Uh, I I, I felt like I couldn't really, uh, I was so burnt out from the tours and the recordings and, you know, um, then I said, well, I'll just have to shuffle the cards and see what comes up, you know? And, uh, and I wasn't going to know what I was going to be doing until after I did it. <laughs> so, you know, I got out of the band, sat around for a couple of weeks, figured, well, maybe I'll get out of music altogether. I don't know what I'll do. Maybe I'll just drive a taxi. <laughs> drive a taxi or you know uh, but I ended up starting starting to dream about music and says oh I gotta I gotta do some kind of music thing so I worked as a producer I produced other bands for about two years uh, I did, had no idea how hard it was I mean from what I know I was like you know these guys they, you know they 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 were just regular guys that we worked with who were very musical. I figured, well, I could do that, but I didn't understand how difficult the business side of it was going to be. And then finding the right combination of personalities. Um, So that was a two year experiment that was not very successful. My first uh, unsuccessful event in my life was that those two years. And then um, I I ran into a, uh, some people at a party. We had moved to a, a new new town, and I met some people at a party. And they said, "Well, what you know? There's a private school just up the road uh, called Foreman School, and uh, they'll take anybody." <laughs> <laughs> this is this is Ron McFarland. His son is a famous cartoonist, Seth McFarlane. You know, the family guy yeah, yeah, cartoon. Yeah. yeah, Seth. And and Ron has that same sense of humor. So I, I ended up working with Ron McFarlane for, for uh, uh, eight years in a private school, you know, private boarding school for dyslexic students. And that's when I really learned a lot. And I was, I was very successful at that. I learned teaching chops, you know, how, you know, how, how do you really connect with the student and get them to learn? It was, they're, they're, they're people with learning uh, difficulties. So, you know, it was, you know, start, you know, starting out in the seat of my pants, you know, I was 50 years old and uh, that was a nice run. And then I got into that, like I was saying, I got into the publishing 
thing for a while with the music publishing books. And then after I got tired of the music thing and I had the Metallica cover, mm-hmm. I decided that I would just be a uh, adjunct faculty rather than full time. And that meant, uh, you know, traveling around to like four or five different schools and just doing a few lessons here, a few lessons there. But it was very it was lucrative. I could raise my rates because I was a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> what did you get out of teaching? Oh, I just loved the, the kids. I loved learning from, you know, they would, I would be teaching them, but they would be teaching me, you know, about all kinds of different music that I, you know, you know, I taught video for uh, part of my full-time career there. So I learned a the, the little bit about, you know, putting together videos, which I still use now, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, I, I, I had some very – I loved, loved taking, you know, a group of uh, – students young students they could be junior high school you know uh they're 13 12 13 14 years old and you put them together and all of a sudden something clicks and then the next thing you know they're playing music you couldn't believe you know and uh that was a good it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun i did that for 20 years did you ever lose your passion for music i mean it doesn't sound like it or if you if you did, you it seems like you've gotten it back. But did you? Was there ever a time when you weren't as passionate about music? No, I was always always loved it. Always loved it. You know, um, it's a different world now. You know, because it's all digital, and you know, uh, we, we trade instead of going to a studio. It, 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 we trade files, and I kind of like that, you know. I can be a part of somebody else's record, like that Pink Floyd mm-hmm. thing. Ah, I can't believe that. <laughs> I can't believe I'm on that Pink Floyd with Al Miola and Billy Cobham. Obviously, the pandemic yeah. did not affect you in your creativity and no, the things that you did. No, yeah, yeah, and uh, um, yeah, I, I I put out my sixth solo album at the beginning of the pandemic. So I was doing a lot of interviews. I did a hundred interviews on, on that record so far. Now the new album called American, American rocker. (laughs) Uh, I'm only done about 45 interviews. So, uh, but, and, and, but I think during the pandemic, it was interesting because everybody just wanted to talk and, you know, like finally connect with somebody. You know, yeah. maybe now it's not, oh, it's not a big thing. You know, you know, I can go out to shows now. I can buy my groceries without having to disinfect them. <laughs> as, as Stephen Colbert said, we're, that time when we were scared of our groceries. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. That was the, that was the only one trip that I could take every, every week was just to go to the grocery store, you know. So I put my, you know... It was great because uh, I didn't have any gigs to go to and and uh, uh, not no distractions. So the writing for this latest album, I think, was really the best writing I've ever done. It's the most me in a recording that that I've ever done. Um, and it, you know, it was just being reflective as to what what really gives me joy. And it was those years when you were just working your way up the ladder, you know, uh, in the music business and, and, uh, being very, uh, very lucky that it happened, that it happened, you know, it could have gone different ways at, at any time, you know, could have just fallen apart, you know, and I'll say, I hate you. I don't want to do this anymore, but no, but 16 late years later, it was still, Chugging along, you know. At the height of it, was it everything you thought it would be? Oh, yeah. I think it was. I mean, we, we knew we were never going to be a phenomenon like the Beatles. Uh, but just to be able to, you know, be in, you know, you know, part of that, part of that realm, you know. Uh, I have met uh, some, some famous people. Roger Waters. 
who I told, the first thing I said to Roger Waters was, I have learned so much from your bass playing. <laughs> I don't think he knows that I played on this Pink Floyd tribute right. thing, but but he was a big, big influence. And uh, and Mick Jagger, you know, he was he was really nice when I met him. Uh, it was just a, a chance encounter on a Caribbean island. But that was a real rock star life. <laughs> and he he remembers coming to see Blue Oyster Cult. And he was asking me about, well, do you remember that? And I said, I, I can't believe he remembered it. <laughs> this was in 1975. And I met him in 2008, wow. you know. So, yeah. So there's there's those. Got to meet a few people that are my idols, you know. Ever think about writing a book? Yes. Because <laughs> well, your bandmate um, in Blue Coop. Dennis Dunaway well, wrote a book. Yes, Dennis wrote a very nice book, and we 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 actually toured his book, did a lot of bookstores, and that was an interesting ride too. You know, I've always been looking. You know, when I was a rock star, uh, you didn't really learn anything except getting on stage and playing the shows and doing the best. You know, trying ex you know expressing your best personality to the audience. Right. Uh, but but as far as like learning. Anything? No, it was pretty. <laughs> I felt like, but you know, so when I left, I felt like, well, let's just explore the world, you know, and see what happens. So you know, I I worked with Spencer Davis as his keyboard player. That was tremendous. And then, you know, I got to do these big uh, charity shows with different, you know, uh, all star shows. I went to Iraq and played for the, um, the American troops in Iraq. And that was a, that was a tremendous experience, you know, um, and stuff that I would never do or go on to go on a, a tour with Dennis Dunaway. And he's, <laughs> he's giving lectures about his book. Like, wow. That's very good. That's very well, good. When I look at your yeah. touring schedule, I don't see solo shows. I see the blue coop and I see the Bouchard brothers. Is there any plans for well, your own we, stuff? Yeah, I, I will probably do a solo tour. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm practicing, rehearsing every day. Uh, the Bouchard brothers is my, my 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 brother Albert and my partner Joan, who uh, who is a actually started out as an acoustic player and took lessons with Dave Van Ronk oh. in the Village wow. for many years. When I, when I, and uh, yeah, she, she so. I had to teach her, this is my teaching skills, I had to teach her how to play uh, electric guitar. And so she, she plays a lot of the leads in the, in our show, you know, where Albert and I just concentrate and be in the rhythm section like we were, you know, right. making it feel good and everything. And she puts the icing on the cake. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I, you know, I think we'll probably end up doing Bouchard Brothers show until Albert has something else. He's all working in five different bands. <laughs> he got different projects. He's doing a science fiction project. He's, he, he just turned 75 and he is working on his third double vinyl album in a row. Wow. He put out Imaginos. Uh, Reimaginos. Then there was Imaginos two, and he, now he's working on Imaginos three, and they're they're big projects. And he and I, I'm 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 stunned because you know he's just a well of creativity, and I'm sure that that spurs me to when I'm doing my records, I better make this good. <laughs> I don't want to look bad compared to that my older brother who's just cranking them out you know was there always competition between the two yeah i can imagine yeah oh yeah oh yeah but as, as we've we've talked about recently is like he he was always my biggest supporter in the band you know he would find things in my tapes that i didn't think were that great and he'd bring them up to the band says, we got to do this you know and uh albert doesn't take no for an answer <laughs> Well, it must be interesting when when the two of you, obviously family, and you've been together all your life, but when you think about the amount of years you've played together and continue to play with one another, there must be 
yeah. a language or a thing that happens on stage that's probably unlike many others. I yeah, and and even when we were like in the middle of the pandemic, we did a whole video series uh, where he would just he would send me music and we'd make the music and then we'd send videos back and forth and we put them all together like we were in the same room. It was yeah, yeah, and and even now when when he asks me to do something for one of his albums or he does a guest spot on my album, uh, it, it's like I don't really have to worry about will will this stylistically fit in? You know, we, we're we've had this uh, sort of uh, psychic radar <laughs> between siblings, you know, the psych, psychic radar that. Uh, you know, once in a while, I'll say, oh, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Do something else. And then, you know, but most of the time, it, it just fits in perfectly. I don't, you know, it's just our background. It goes way back. I can imagine. Joe, thank you so much yeah. for taking this time. It's a real thrill talking well, to you. Well, great talking to you. You you did your homework really well, and I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to, to seeing this. Hey, if you can come to the Elmo Combo, let yeah, us know. Yeah, I will try. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Drop me an email or whatever. Okay. Get a hold of me. And so I think I, I don't know what the situation is, but I'm looking forward to a good time. Yeah, it's middle of July. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. And yeah. um, I look forward well, to seeing you. What? Well, thank you so much. Great talking to you.